Hey, you're listening to the Citizen Coder Podcast. In this episode, I talk to Brooklyn Myers, a developer and teacher of the Elixir programming language. We talk about finding a job in tech, functional programming, building an Elixir academy, I forget how to say anecdotal, and so much more. Let's dive in. Hey, so why don't you go ahead and uh, introduce yourself real quick? Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Brooklyn Myers. I'm the Elixir instructor at Dockyard Academy, and I'm also the host of the Elixir Newbie podcast. So what um, what kind of got you into podcasting? That's a really good question. Um, a lot of random choices and circumstances. Uh, it all started with a sabbatical. So if anyone is considering a sabbatical, I highly recommend it. So uh, sabbatical, basically taking a few months off of work to um, either do a big trip or just take the time off, um, kind of think about what you want to keep doing with your life. And it was, it was just this time where I had this opportunity to take some time off and I was kind of half enjoying my development work. I was working in um, I was Mern Stack, so Mongo, Express, uh, Express, React Native, and Node. Okay. And I was just having these feelings in my job of like, hey, like this is fun. I love development, but there's just something off. Like something's not quite right. And I didn't know exactly what it was. So fortunately, I had this awesome opportunity to just take some time off, think about what I wanted to do. Um, when I say sabbatical, for me, it was kind of like a diet quitting. Oh yeah, uh, sure. Where, yeah, it was, it was like, I know that I want to leave, but I want the security of being able to come back. So I'm going to call yeah. this a sabbatical, but I think everyone knows that I'm really just leaving. I took a sabbatical um, once. It was, it was really just a big layoff. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sabbatical. And so, exactly. Um, and during that time I started to reflect on like, Hey, what is it that I really enjoyed doing? And I started to realize, oh man, it's teaching. Like the parts of development that I enjoy the most are when you have a junior dev join your team and you need to help them onboard, or um, you need to, you know, supervise a couple of developers on a feature. Or um, and I just started realizing more and more that the, you know, completing a ticket work, while I really do enjoy that, um, I needed more teaching and education in my life. And that is the stuff that I'm the most passionate about. And so, um, I had all this free time, so I started writing. Uh, I started writing about Elixir, um, which was this kind of programming language that at the time I was just starting to be interested in, and writing was a way to learn more about it. Uh, and then as I started writing more and that started picking up some popularity, I was like, hey, why not try a podcast? It really was that simple. It wasn't this big, like, I'm going to start a podcast. It's going to you know, be this, this big thing, and I'm going to put all this effort into it, and it's going to be super successful. It, it really just was like, I'm going to record myself talking into a microphone for an hour and see what happens. And I showed my friends that first recording uh, and they said, well, it wasn't bad, but it was terrible. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I tried that and, a few times. <laughs> and so the first one, I, I it was a bit of a throwaway. It was like, okay, you know, learning experience. And I took the feedback. And then the next one I recorded um, was was better. It was publishable. Um, and I just kept kind of walking through the steps of building out a podcast, learning how to host it, learning how to deploy it on the different platforms. Um, and I just put the episode out and then I just kind of kept doing that. And then at some point, 
um, that started helping me get kind of attention within the Elixir community. Um, and that led to, to where I am now. So yeah, it, it was not some big thought out thing. It was just, I really want to try this form of content creation. I already know I enjoy writing. Maybe I'll enjoy speaking. Um, I'm sure within the span of this podcast, you'll learn that I like talking a lot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Nothing so, wrong with yeah, talking. It was just, yeah, it was, it was just an experiment that continued to go well. So how did you wind up um, programming? Like what was your kind of journey to that point to actually start? Yeah, it's, it's really funny. Um, I got into it kind of post high school. So uh, I had a kind of wild traumatic like exit out of high school where um, I had this pretty major concussion. It was a compound concussion. And so all hopes and dreams of like university had kind of gone down the toilet. Um, and I just wasn't able to like maintain grades or was that, uh, it was, it, I'm sorry, was that football related or, or is it's so weird that you guessed that and are correct. Yeah, it was football related. It was football <laughs> and wrestling related, uh, compound. Cause I got it in multiple sports. Um, and yeah, I, I really not to, not to go too deep into that aspect. By the way, I, this sounds like it's a horrible thing. I'm actually really grateful for it. Uh, it was something that altered the trajectory of my life in a really good way. Um, but yeah, yeah at the sure. time, it was it was a huge bummer. You know, like, um, oh man, I can't go to university. This has totally altered my path. What the heck am I going to do? And um, you know, couldn't finish the rest of the the kind of football season, which was definitely a bummer at the time. And uh, graduated high school just feeling completely lost in life, like. I started kind of working, you know, classic minimum wage jobs, um, got into computer sales and repair, and that kind of got me interested in tech. Um, and then I had a friend who, when hearing me lament my, like, I don't know what to do with my life, you know, the classic kind of early 20s struggle, uh, late teens, early 20s struggle that everyone has, like, what the heck am I going to do with my life? Sure. Um, I was like, hey, you should try out a Udemy course. And, <laughs> uh, and I did, and I loved it. It was uh, Stephen... Oh, what was it? Um, Rob Percival's Rob Percival. developer course. That was the first hey. one I ever did. Really? Same that's, exact that's one. That's too funny. It's such a, it's, yeah, it was such a great intro into programming. Um, and at this time I wasn't even considering like, oh man, I love this. Like now I'm, I'm pretty passionate about it. But at the time I was just like, I just need to do something <laughs> other than um, selling computers. Uh, Cause it was, it was a fun job, but you kind of get used to the motions after a little while. Yeah. Um, so we have a, we have a lot of parallels. Um, so I actually, well, we don't have the, the high school concussion as a parallel, but, uh, I actually, uh, did a lot of computer repair, um, for a job for a while before I got into programming. Um, it didn't necessarily, I mean, I guess it sort of led me to programming, but I ran a small computer repair business out of Charlotte, North Carolina and wound up, I mean, we wound up moving, a lot of life stuff happened, had a kid, you know, family members passed away. And, uh, I just, I really just kind of got into it looking for a way to make money outside of, um, doing computer repair work, which was kind of, kind of on a downslope. And it, I think it still kind of is unless you you know, own Macs or something like that and need those fixed. Mm -hmm. That sounds like it would have been a pretty tumultuous, uh, tumultuous transition period. But um, how are you enjoying the like, you know, did did that transition kind of work for you? Because um, that's the great thing about programming is it's so accessible, is that it, anyone from any background can get into it. 
Yeah, it really is. And I don't, you know, I don't program for a living as of yet, but um, it's definitely given me a lot of, uh, a, a lot of fun. And, you know, I've learned a lot of new stuff and I've been able to build, you know, websites here and there. I actually had a job right before the uh, pandemic hit. I was working for a resort and I was rebuilding their website and I was built, I built them a a an online store for their um they had like a little clothing store there so i built their online store for that and then pandemic hit and they closed (laughs) i think it lasted about six months and that was that was pretty much it yeah that's uh it's it's unfortunate a lot of um a lot of things were halted in the past couple years that's for sure but yeah and i um, live in um a really small area too so there's not a lot of like tech jobs nearby Mm. so i'd have to pack up and move and or find something real remote that Mm. would be okay with bringing somebody on board without a you know a ton of uh professional dev experience man i i literally could and have had entire conversations about just getting your first developer job um i know we have a lot that we want to we want to talk about but i would love to kind of talk about that a little bit sure um Getting your first job is so hard, uh, which I say as someone who really wants people to get into programming, like I don't mean to say that in a discouraging way. Um, no. It's the hardest part by far. Like once you have your first job, you now have your hands on the ladder and you can keep climbing. But the first rung of the ladder is so high that it can be really difficult to get enough of a foundation to be hireable, to meet the people that you need to, you know, if you go about it kind of the classic ways, which are, let's say, job forums, um, which I'm, I'm really, I'm not against using job forums, um, but I think there are better ways to find work that a lot of people don't take advantage of when they're looking for their first job. Um, and so it can be this like very discouraging thing. A lot of people get turned away in that early cycle. I think we miss out on a lot of people who could have been really great developers if they had just, um, uh, kind of been able to get that first, uh, get their foot in the door. Um, so if, if you don't mind, I'd love to talk a little bit about kind of what I recommend people do for getting their first job. And maybe that can be something that's interesting to you as well. Yeah. Yeah. Go for it. Yeah. So essentially the current landscape. So you're a new developer. Um, you haven't gotten your first professional experience. This is the metaphorical you, um, maybe you, the listener. Metaphorical and me. The metaphorical you. Um, and you're considering, okay, like how do I get my first job? And kind of the classic, oh, well, I will go to a job board. I'll see jobs that are posted and I will put my resume on them and send a message saying, hey, here's why I think I'm a good fit. And rinse, wash, repeat. I'll do that 10, 20, 30 times. And the thing is, whenever you're doing that, if you are someone who does not have lots of resume experience, you're competing on your weaknesses rather than competing on your strengths, right? So you're competing with other people who have professional experience or who mm-hmm. have a bigger resume. And even if you would have been a great personality fit, um, your attitude was was way better than the person that you're competing with, this, this pretend person that has more experience, um, you would have learned on the job and been able to produce quickly. Um, you would have been an absolute you know, sponge for knowledge because you have that, like, I haven't worked yet. So whatever patterns and practices, like junior developers are awesome because they are generally unopinionated and mm-hmm. they will be quick to pick up the habits and practices of the team 
Whereas you can have some very experienced senior developers come on and they have very strong opinions. So you can spend a lot more of your time debating what the right way is rather than just moving forward and making progress. Um, yeah, that makes and so a lot that's, of sense. yeah. And so that's where a lot of people get discouraged is they have to, you know, you hear stories of like, oh, just send out a hundred job applications and eventually you'll find the right one. I'm like, if you do something a hundred times and it's not working, stop. Like that's the definition of insanity, right? Is, is repeating right. uh, the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. It's like the world is trying to tell you that you're doing something incorrectly when you continuously experience negative feedback. So sure. if that's the place that you're in, if that is not working, um, there's two paths forward. Either you need to figure out how to compete on experience and get this like really impressive looking resume, which is going to be really hard um, if you don't have professional experience, or you compete on your strengths. And your strengths as a junior are your personability, um, your like talking and people skills, your enthusiasm, um, basically mm -hmm. everything that you can't put into a resume, right? Yeah. And yeah. so as a junior and a new dev, um, in my opinion, the best way to find opportunities is to meet with these people directly as much as possible. It doesn't have to be in person because I know the past two years have been pretty hard for that, although it is starting to be more possible. Um, when I say directly, I mean like what I often recommend to people is find companies that you're interested in working for um, on sites like LinkedIn, find companies that have the technical stack that you're interested in, and then find people who work for that company and reach out and don't reach out saying, hey, please give me a job because everyone is going to be kind of deterred by that. That's kind of yeah. off-putting. <laughs> um, it's, it's more of a, Hey, um, I'm a new dev. Um, I've been, you know, trying to, uh, work and learn in order to get the skills I need to like be hired. Um, I was really curious if you don't mind me asking, uh, what's your experience working at company XYZ like? Right. And I'm not asking for anything. I'm, yeah. you know, if you don't mind, I'm being polite. Like you don't have to. Sure. Um, and the goal of that, there's kind of multiple goals to that. The first goal is um, so hiring is hard. Even if you make it through the process, most hiring cycles are about three weeks, kind of minimum. Um, you're going to have multiple different meetings. And if you ask that person, hey, what's it like? And they say, ah, like it's okay, um, which is probably the worst thing that anyone would would say online about about their own company right um that means it's terrible and you should not <laughs> waste your time uh interviewing for that company because you were about to spend even if you made it through the process that could have been three you know three to six weeks depending on their their cycle that you just spent wasted on trying to get a company to hire you that you didn't want to work for in the first place yeah a company that's not gonna be so great yeah so best way to like uh save time is to not spend it in the first place right that's the best way to go faster is to not do it. Makes and sense so, to me. Yeah. So you that's kind of your worst case scenario. Um, best case, they tell you information about the company and then maybe you can ask them, hey, like um, if things are going well and you're kind of picking their brain and getting some idea, you're basically asking them questions that you do want to know, like ask them about the company, what stack they're using. Um, you might ask them like, hey, uh, if you've already applied for a job posting, you might say like, hey, you know, I have this job posting. Um, what do you think I should prepare for? Like, what kind of things are you doing at XYZ company? Um, that's a great question. Cause now you can know how to kind of prepare for the interview. Um, and, and know, Oh, like you guys use, uh, I don't know. Um, you guys use a lot of, uh, you don't use class syntax for your react components. You use a lot more like function syntax. And if you don't know function syntax, but you know, class syntax, that will probably hurt you just as a like off the cuff example. Um, and if you're, as you're having this conversation, 
things seem to be going well, then you might ask them, hey, you know, I'm really, you, you've, you've spoken really well about this company. Um, I would love to apply. Do you know who I should speak to? Right. And that is a very yeah. low effort. You're not asking for a recommendation because, again, that I think deters people. Yeah. Um, that's like if I don't know you, I probably don't everybody stick my neck out for you. Right. 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 Um, and so, but it gracefully gives you an opportunity where they might offer. Right. Like kind of worst thing. Oh, sorry. I don't know. Okay. Sure, no yeah. problem. I'll go find out. Um, oh, yeah. It's so and so. Great. Now maybe you just skip the queue. Now maybe your resume goes directly to the person who is responsible for hiring rather than getting pre-filtered by some kind of an automated system. Like that's great. Oh um, yeah. So that yeah, could that, have, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So that could have just saved you the hardest part as a junior, which is getting past the like, oh, your resume didn't have the one keyword. So we're going to remove it now because when you post a job thing, you get like 40 to a hundred resumes and you have to do a bunch of early filtering. That's kind of unfair. Um, because you, you haven't met the candidates, but you just have to, cause how else are you going to filter? Um, and great. Now you, maybe you skip that line and best, best case scenario. This person's really impressed with your attitude. You've managed to remain polite, uh, considerate. You haven't overextended yourself and they are impressed by that. And they say, yeah, it's so-and-so and let me give you a referral. Because a lot of companies, um, they might just do it out of the goodness of their heart. And like, that's awesome. Um, there's lots of just nice people who will just do it because it's a good thing to do. And mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's awesome if that's part of their motivation. Um, there might also be uh, internal hiring uh, bonuses and things like that. So this is something that people want to do. They just want to make sure that they do it with someone they can trust. Um, so they might get a bonus if they recommend and refer you. Um, and then now you're getting kind of the white glove treatment getting into the company um and you've skipped so many of the early filters so yeah that's that's my tldr uh, i don't know how um uh, uh short that actually was i think i may have talked about it for quite a while because it's something i'm pretty passionate <laughs> no, that's about fine. but uh yeah I, I hope that's that's useful for you yeah definitely um you know somebody that's kind of um sort of looked at at applying i've applied a few places but i haven't gone like full board trying to to find something. I mean, my, my current job, uh, it pays, it, the, the pays okay. It's not the greatest, but it's, you know, it, it pays the bills and, you know, um, you know, we aren't struggling, but, um, I also get my job. Actually, I work three days a week. So I work Friday, Saturday and Sunday and that's it. Nice. So nice. I get four days off a week and it lets me, you know, focus on side projects and family time and things like that. So it's not as like, as far as that goes, it's kind of hard to beat um, mm -hmm. as far as the time off goes. So, I, you know, I, I guess I haven't really, I haven't really put the time into trying to uh, find something else quite yet. Um, mm. Also, I, I probably, um, I probably sell myself short as far as what my actual technical abilities are maybe there's some, some doubt, um, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of imposter syndrome, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, everyone has it. Um, it's, it's kind of funny. You mentioned funny. You mentioned that because the sign of someone who, um, how do I put this? If someone tells me they're extremely confident in their developer abilities, I either think they're actually exceptional or very bad. 
Like there's there's very little binary mm. there. Okay. Um, and that's Dunning-Kruger effect. So I don't know, uh, for, for folks who might not be aware of Dunning-Kruger effect, essentially the less you know about something, the more confidently you will rate yourself in your abilities. Whereas the more you know about something, the less confidently you'll rate yourself in your abilities. So I'll give a, a oh, personal example. Yeah, it's it's a it's an interesting effect. It's good to be aware of because it can help you self-diagnose where you're at with something. So when someone tells me that they're not super confident, I actually see that as like a really good sign, funny enough. Um, and so for myself, when I first started development, I had someone kind of ask me, hey, like, where would you rate yourself on a scale of 10 as a developer? I'm like, oh, you know, maybe about a seven, maybe about a seven, you know, a little bit above average. And then I actually learned more about programming and real world stuff. I'm like, okay, maybe like a five. I'm like right on the average. Mark. <laughs> yeah. Okay, maybe about a five. <laughs> and then I started to see the bigger world of programming and what's out there. And I'm like, I'm a, I'm a three. I'm a three. <laughs> I'm a three. Maybe a two. <laughs> maybe a two. And these days I'm like, yeah, I'm like a fraction of one. I'm like 0 0.5, 0 point. And it, it has not started increasing. <laughs> That's too funny. <laughs> so I think, and obviously I haven't gotten worse. I've gotten better, but sure. you... Um, as your circle of knowledge expands, the circumference of what you don't know also expands as well, because you become more and more aware that more there aware, is a right. great number of things that you don't know. Mm. That's, uh, that's kind of a little mind blowing for me. I, I'm glad know, to have blown your mind. I, I hadn't really considered that. Um, I just figured, you know, I've, I've spent probably the last four years or ish, you know, learning the program and, um, and I, honestly, I've, I've, I've probably tried so many, like maybe, maybe uh, a good three quarters of the languages out there. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, may, maybe, maybe it's less, but you know, it's been a lot and I just hadn't really considered that, you know. Maybe it, I rate myself so low because I've just um, I've learned a lot more. You know, mm -hmm. I hadn't really given that. Yeah, a, I hadn't, hadn't considered that. Yeah, and it can be both, right? Like we can be aware of our weaknesses and know that we want to improve them, and so that's good, right? Walk into the world with some humility about ourselves, um, but yeah. also be aware. Like I, I had this quote um, from a mentor of mine. Uh, former boss, really, really excellent, excellent um, leader. And his comment about imposter syndrome was like, yeah, yeah, of course I'm an imposter. Like, of course. Um, but it's not my <laughs> job to decide that. It's not my job to decide whether or not I am qualified and capable for this position or whether or not I'm able to do it. It's my job to do my absolute best to live up to the responsibility and do what it is that I'm hired for. And it is someone else's job to decide whether or not I'm actually effective at that. And that was his kind of way of getting around imposter syndrome was like, yeah, just accept it. Of course. Just accept it. Yeah. Yeah. But it's not, it's not your job to judge yourself. Right. It's, you know, other people will do that for you. Yeah. I mean, you get a job and, you know, the company's going to decide whether, or, you know, you apply for something and a company's going to decide whether you're good enough for it or not. Mm-hmm. When so we're not going to talk about Elixir today at all because there's too much there's too many interesting things to cover um so I, we'll we'll see how much we're able to get to but um I really want to talk about kind of related to this um so as much as I say other people are going to be your judges and you don't have to be your own judge of course you're still going to like be critical of your abilities and 
use your knowledge of your strengths and weaknesses to know where to improve. Of course, there's a, a dichotomy here. Right. Um, but I got to have a really interesting experience. So one of the things that you might encounter if you're looking for work that I really hate and I want to change the culture around this is that some companies, if while they're ascertaining your ability, they find that wherever you are on the spectrum of ability is lower than their bar, whatever that means to them, right? Different companies will have different bars. Right. Some companies will be unfortunately judgmental and will not gracefully, um, they won't speak to you in a way that I find respectable, right? It'll, it'll be this, you feel judged, you feel mm-hmm. um, like the people are being judgmental, um it's kind of this like oh you know kind of vibe uh from the people in front of you and of course not everyone does that there's lots of excellent excellent interviewers yeah but it's an unfortunate trend i've had the opportunity to experience and i had the opportunity to experience it in a very unique way where when i started the election to be podcast more people started reaching out to me about how do i get my first job which is where a lot of these thoughts come from um and i was like well I've always done it in a kind of weird way where I've always known the person who was hiring me, right? I always kind of met them through mutual contacts and it was kind of a friend hiring me, like a good friend of mine gave me my first job and then he helped me get my next job. And so I was like, I don't feel like I'm the right person to answer this question because it's not coming from a place of experience. So I was like, okay, well, how do I get experience? I need one of those. (laughs) 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 Yes. Um, uh, uh, having friends, man, having a good support network is absolutely critical. Um, but suffice it to say, I still wanted hands-on experience of what's it like to look for work from scratch. And so I did this experiment. I was kind of in a position where I was like, you know what? I kind of am thinking about leaving, but not in a like immediate kind of a way. So let's just do a bunch of job hunting. And I don't care about the outcome. Like I, I am not concerned at all about actually getting a job i'm doing this purely as an experiment for learning so i'm going to purposely try things that i wouldn't normally try for fear that it would lose me the opportunity and i learned a ton from that oh wow that's Um, that's interesting it it was fun it was very fun one of the things i learned because there's there's a few different stories in there i won't have time to tell all of it but one of the things i learned was um so most interviews do what i call example-based testing Right. This is just like if you're doing testing in a code system where you say, hey, call my function with this input. It should return this output. And then the function works. It's like, okay, I have a function that doubles numbers. If I give it two, it should return four. Cool. Have you actually comprehensively tested and understood your function? No, you've only tested it for one input, example-based testing. And so that's how most companies do it. They give you a very small exercise and they say, do this exercise. And depending on how you do, we're going to judge your ability. So if we pick something that you've just never thought about before, too bad you're going to get under uh, where you probably should land. Or if you literally just saw this problem, um, great, you're going to look like you're a senior dev, even though you're probably more junior or intermediate. Ah. And so what I had happen was in doing a few different interviews, I was rated all over the place. So in more <laughs> conversational interviews, they said, yeah, you're like, you know, you're like, um, not quite senior, more like high intermediate, just peeking into the senior. You'd be a senior at most other companies, but because our domain is very specific, you're probably not going to feel like a senior here. That was kind of their response. So I was like, oh, okay, cool. Okay. Then I went to another company and they told me, yeah, you're like barely intermediate. You're like a low intermediate dev just above being a junior. Um, and I was like, <laughs> okay, interesting. Um, and so that taught me like, 
don't, as much as other people are your judges, also like don't let other people determine your value. Um, if a company is judgmental, like sometimes it's because they have really bad hiring practices and they don't know how to actually find out people's skill. Yeah. Um, I've kind of seen a, you know, a lot of that on LinkedIn, you know, and Twitter, uh, dev Twitter, especially, um, complaining about the hiring practices and how they really don't reflect a, what you, what you're going to do on the job. So a lot of times you wind up with these, you know, leak code program or, uh, tests that don't really, Mm-hmm. They, they don't, they don't really measure your, your ability to do the job that they're hiring for. And, you know, just kind of a lot of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Companies just have these really, uh, off the, off the rails, um, hiring practices that don't, don't really fit what they're, what they're hiring for, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Some of them can be pretty crazy. I, I once had a, I once had an interviewer. Um, this was so many different red flags here. Um, we sat down, we had an hour long meeting booked and I was working a full-time job and was also interviewing at multiple different companies simultaneously, which means multiple code challenges and things that I'm doing, uh, you know, take home assignments. Normally I don't like take home assignments, uh, but for the sake of kind of this experiment, I was willing to do them. Um, and he said, Hey, like you're going to build a URL shortener. I'm like, what? Like, you want me to build a fully functioning URL? Like, you want me to talk through how I would build it, right? No, no. In the next 30 minutes, I want you to build a URL shortener. I'm like, that's too big, man. (laughs) Like, 30 minutes isn't even enough time for me to think. I've never seen that domain. That's crazy. I need to think about the problem. That's going to require scaffing it out in an entire app. And you want me to do that in the next 30 minutes? He's like, oh, yeah, no problem. You can stay late. No, <laughs> no, I can't stay late. Do you our work for, us. for an hour. Thank you. Respect my time. Absolutely yeah. not. Uh, so that was the company that that told me that I was a junior dev. Um, uh, so I don't, I don't, I don't hold too much weight in that comment. That's funny. <laughs> I, I might sound a little bit salty. <laughs> no, I mean you know with good reason. Uh, especially That's a funny one. I, since they were basically wanting you to do some work for them and not get paid. Were they, were they paying for this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, um, and, and again, I'm not, I'm not actually trying to be salty. I, I more tell oh, that I story because I know that a lot of, uh, newer devs get discouraged by the process. And I'm here to say like, it's really not you. Um, like what is wrong about being inexperienced? Like fundamentally, there's nothing wrong with that, right? Everyone right. starts out beginner at some point. Yeah. Everyone has to work their way through. Okay, there's a few super geniuses out there who, sure. you know, move at a much faster pace, but ultimately we're all still walking the same line. Mm-hmm. So what is there to be shameful about being earlier or later on in that climb up the mountain? Like there's nothing wrong with that. Right. Yeah, there's there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Um, and that's probably part of what... Um, what discourages people um, with the mm-hmm. with the job search? Well, if you're if you're junior, you think that people know what they're talking about, right? You assume that everyone else knows, and you don't. And so, sure. if some other company says, "Oh, you're you know you're pretty inexperienced," or if they kind of make you feel judged, then you're going to take that like it's a comment that's worth some weight. But mm-hmm. in my opinion, if anyone makes someone feel bad because they're uh, now, if, if you're misrepresenting yourself, this is a very different conversation. Yeah. But if you're honest about your abilities and yourself, then like, what's there to be ashamed of, you know? Right. I mean, because, you know, the world of tech is, is wide and large and, you, you know, you can only know so much of it at one, t- at one time. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> part of what I love about it is yeah. like you as an absolute beginner developer in three days, heck, in 20 minutes, could know more about something mm-hmm. than an experienced developer. Sure. There's too much to know. They've yeah. never even been introduced to the concept. You know, they'll have stronger fundamentals, but yeah. if you've spent some time on something, then you'll know more about it. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, yeah. Let's uh, switch gears here for a minute. Yeah. Um, let's I wanted talk about Elixir. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was going to say, I wanted to talk to you a little bit more about Elixir. Um, so it's, it's, it's a functional programming language. What's the difference between Correct. that and, and the standard object oriented? I love that question. And it's a question that when I first started developing, I kept asking and everyone gave me these like horrible, very confusing answers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to try my best to make it as clear and understandable as possible, yeah. knowing full well that in order to really understand the difference, you kind of have to spend some time with both. Sure. And that'll give you more of an understanding. Yeah. But I'll start by saying, so these are two problem-solving tools, right? They're paradigms of thinking. They're ways of thinking about building programs that allow yeah. us to model and solve problems, right? Classic object-oriented is saying everything in the world is an object, it has data and behavior. These things are grouped together, and we often call that a class or some kind of structure, right? So I have a cat, and it has behavior where it can speak. It can say meow, right? And uh, maybe it has some internal data associated with it, like its hair, fur color, um, age, you know. And so that's object-oriented. Is It's a way of modeling reality and problems by using objects, by grouping up data and behavior. Right, And so functional programming says, hey, we don't agree with that way of modeling problems. There's some, some issues with that, right? Like object-oriented inheritance is a huge problem. Or, okay, well, we have a cat and a dog. We're going to say that these both have a common ancestor, a common, you know, well, commonality. And we're going to call that an animal, right? And so all animals right. can speak. And then we're going to implement those. Uh, it's been a little while since so I, I might have my terminology wrong here because I haven't done object-oriented in a while, but we're sure, going to implement sure. those yeah. in our two child classes. But then you have things like, okay, but like, are they really common? Are they really going to have similar functions? Did we make the right ancestor? Did we make the right um, uh, a kind of common class to group them together? Um, then you wind up with these massively complex inheritance trees, and it's just, it's not, um, for some problems, it's not the right way of solving the problem. It it winds up having a bunch of issues. And so functional programming, uh, it's not anything extra. Let me just say that. Functional programming is more like programming with additional limitations and constraints that make your program easier to follow and easier to understand. At least that's the goal of it, right? These are both, um, the goal of both of these paradigms is to make problems easier to solve, easier to understand. And so functional says, hey, object-oriented programming, I don't like that you're grouping data and behavior together, right? You have a class, it has some internal data, some state, and you have functions, and often those functions will kind of mutate or modify the internal state of the class. I don't think that's right. I think that behavior and data should be separate. So instead, we have our data and we say, cool, we have a cat, right? And we have a concept uh, specifically in Elixir called a struct, which stands for structure, which is a way of structuring data, right? It's... um, it's, it's basically just some enforcement around like a basic data type. So we might say, okay, I have a cat struct 
and it has all the data associated with the cat. And then I'm going to have some function that accepts the cat. I'm going to have my speak function, my say function, whatever it is. And when I pass in the cat, I'm going to handle it differently than when you pass in a dog. So I'm also going to have a dog struct with all the information about a dog. And then when I pass that in, because it's a dog struct instead of a cat struct, it's going to say woof uh, instead of meow, right? And so okay. we have separated our data from our behavior. And hmm. that is fundamentally how I think about the difference between functional and object-oriented. Now there's, of course, this, it's kind of like, um, uh, what's the term, universality? When you have very simple concepts that become massive, massive complex structures. Right. Um, and so it's kind of like, okay, well that sounds simple on its head, but that means that object-oriented has massively different patterns than something like functional. Um, in functional programming, in certain functional paradigms, we don't allow mutation. Um, and state is very explicit in functional programming. So in object-oriented, um, I bet most people don't even realize that they're introducing state. So state being some variable sure. uh, that has some persistence, either in memory during runtime or uh, like long-term persistence, like stored to a hard drive. Mm -hmm. um, and it has some value. So let's imagine like a counter. Um, and we increment that counter, we mutate its, its state, uh, and then cool, now the count has changed. Right, but okay. that type of mutation can result in all kinds of problems because okay, I have this variable that I'm relying on for the rest of my program. Everyone uses that count, you know, it's an important val value, and anyone can change it at the same time. And I need to track my changes to state because we're able mm. to just mutate that variable, and that introduces so many complex problems. Where you know, if you have two functions and somehow they're mutating a function outside of their scope, well, now you don't know what the value of that, that variable is anymore. And so as you use that variable lower down in your program, you haven't realized that it's been mutated. And that oh. creates a huge problem. Interesting. Right? Most issues, so why is it that when you hit your TV, um, I don't know why I'm saying hit your TV, I'm thinking of the fonts <laughs> for some reason. Why is it that when most technology goes wrong, the solution is to turn it off and on again, right? Classic, you know, yeah, totally. try turning Ch it off and on again. Changing the state. Right, state. Because your program got into some kind of a bad state. That's 99% of programming issues. Um, and so if you don't allow mutation... It's 99% of don't... cell phone issues also, by the way. Yes, all technology, right? <laughs> um, if we have a bug on this podcast recording program, I guarantee you it's going to be because of state. And um, the way to solve that is by turning it off and on again. There's another thing related to that I'll talk about specifically in Elixir, but with regards to mutation, um, because we can't just mutate a value we no longer run into the same kinds of state problems. There's still ways to introduce state into our application, but we have to be really explicit about it. And we wind up not relying on state when it doesn't actually need to be there. Mm. So that's one huge difference. Okay. Um, so one question I had was uh, in regards to the virtual machine that Elixir runs on, um, mm -hmm. what, what kind of makes it, so special, I guess. Yeah, so it was designed for um, fault tolerance and distribu uh, uh, distribution. So it was designed to, um, I was originally designed for kind of telephony systems where you need to have uh, many, um, we sometimes call them a node, or uh, you need to have many systems that if any single system breaks, it doesn't affect the rest of the system. 
right? So you can apply that to like a telephone call where if your connection drops, that shouldn't affect the rest of your callers. That would be really bad, right? Oh, yeah, if a yeah. bug in one phone call affected another, oh, that's a, that's a huge problem. Um, another thing is we need it to be distributed. If all of the processing for this occurs synchronously, as opposed to in parallel or, or on a distributed system, which means we're doing many things at once. Right. Um, that's also a huge problem, right? If if, uh, if if the processing for my phone call is delayed by yours, we have massive issues, right? And so it was designed to solve these types of problems, those of distributed systems um, and concurrency. So concurrency meaning doing many things simultaneously, right? Concurrent yep. as opposed to synchronous, which if you're a JavaScript dev or anything like that, all you've seen for the most part is probably synchronous code. And if you want to introduce concurrency, that's like a very, it's an extra step. Mm -hmm. uh, it's really hard. It's not convenient. And so that is um, where kind of Erlang came in to solve those kinds of problems. And now those kinds of problems have become all kinds of problems. Like most systems are now distributed and most systems need to horizontally scale, uh, which means adding more machines in and distributing your load mm -hmm. as opposed to vertically scaling, which is like, let's get a more powerful computer, right? There's limits to vertical scaling. Right. Um, especially nowadays because the hardware is starting to hit its limits. Yeah. Right. We're no longer getting free performance uh, boost. Now we're getting um, more, you're, you're seeing a shift towards more uh, cores in your machine, right? Multi-core processors are now becoming more normal. And so developers need to design for that. But most popular languages were not built with that type of concurrency in mind. They were built with, hey, my processor is going to be two times faster in 18 months or whatever Moore's Law is exactly. Yeah. Um, so I don't really need to worry about it. My program is going to be two times faster in in a year or 18 months. I can't remember the specific number. Someone will, will correct me, I, I hope. <laughs> um, but it'll get faster for free. So like, great, things are just going to keep getting faster. I don't need to worry about it too much. Whatever algorithm I just wrote is going to be two times faster next year. Um, but that's not a guarantee anymore. That's mm -hmm. not something we're seeing now. It's like, well, next year, I bet I'm going to have more cores. I'm, I bet I'm going to be able to do better concurrency stuff. Right. Um, and so that's where functional, especially, is really good for that type of, uh, and Elixir especially, actually, is really good for that type of distributed systems, that type of concurrency, which used to be more of a niche use case, but now... I think is going to become the predominant use case. So right now Elixir is uh, small when compared with something like JavaScript. Mm -hmm. I personally really, really believe it is in the prime position to be one of the most popular programming languages. Um, now everyone knows how uh, uh, speculation and kind of um, these like, predictions go as most sure. uh, um, I predict that most predictions are wrong um, <laughs> but as far as I can see that makes sense for the kind of path of programming in the next 20 years or so yeah uh, yeah that makes a lot of sense um, what uh, what companies are using um, elixir now do, do you know well discord is probably one of the ones that a lot of people will recognize okay um, and yeah. that's exactly the type of problem where you have multiple things happening mm -hmm. uh, simultaneously, right? So Discord, just in case people aren't aware, um, Discord is, it originally came out as kind of like a Slack for gamers. Yeah. So it's a communication um, software. It allows you to do video call, text chat. Um, if you use Slack for work, it's basically like it offers really, really similar features as Slack. Um, 
Uh, it was originally marketed towards gamers. Now they've really shifted their marketing and it's a much more just general use platform. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of think of it as Slack, but better, but yeah. people don't use it for some reason. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, Slack is kind of a pain in the ass to get on. It's not, yes. you can't just like sign up and, you know, you got to be, I think you got to be invited or you need to have, um, I don't know if you got to be invited. I know last time I tried to get on Slack, it was not the easiest thing to do. Yeah, and Slack is a really good example of um, relational databases gone wrong. Um, not not saying anything bad about relational databases, just when you, you pick the wrong relationship of your data. Because mm-hmm. um, I think they did something like, it's like each Slack, um, they might have changed this. So if they did, like, good on them, because this is a hard problem to solve. Right. Um, but they made it so that each Slack channel has their own user. And so you have a user dedicated to every, not channel, um, workspace is that what they call it basically like yeah, if i, I make a slack for hey the elixir slack right um which if people are interested in elixir there is an elixir slack that has a lot of really good conversations on there um that is a separate user account um if i remember correctly they might have fixed mm. that but that was like one of the interesting problems around Slack. anyway i'm totally tangenting no you're um, fine <laughs> so discord is a great use case for something like elixir because okay we have a chat we have a video we have multiple different channels, and all of these things need to run um, without affecting each other, right? right? So yeah. um, you asked earlier, what's one of the special things about kind of the Beam VM? Mm-hmm. So the Beam VM has this really cool scheduling where every bit of your work gets a certain amount of time for execution. So if I'm doing two things simultaneously, let's say I'm doing something really expensive uh, and something relatively cheap. So let's say I'm hosting my, my video, right? I'm streaming the video. Um, and I'm also supporting a chat, right? The scheduling will receive the bits of work necessary, like taking the image, displaying it to the screen, um, and uh, doing that for you know multiple different videos simultaneously, as well as receiving messages from the chat and displaying them to all of your users. It will, um, rather than allowing one to bottleneck the other, where like, oh, my video is really expensive, it's going to consume a lot of my um, CPU um, and potentially make it so that, hey, like the chat is really laggy. Why did that happen? Mm. It's like, oh, because Mm -hmm. the video feed is taking up too much of our resources and there's no resources left over for the chat. Um, The scheduling is smart such that it'll take all of our bits of workload, spend a certain amount of time executing each, and then continuously um, swap between our different tasks that we have to do. So one of the cool examples of that is you can take, you know, think of an algorithm that would run forever. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's going to take like a hundred years before it finishes. If you start that in Elixir and you start it such that it can run concurrently, then it can continue running forever without actually bottlenecking and slowing down and stopping any of your other uh, tasks that you're executing, any of your other you know bits of workload that you need to do. Right, so you can be running that that right. thing that in most programs, if you started running that algorithm, it would crash your system because it would just go, "Hey, sorry, I'm going to run this forever now," and your whole <laughs> screen would freeze. Yeah, um, with with the scheduling system in the Beam, it wouldn't do that. It would spend a certain number of, uh, I think it's measured in CPU cycles. I can't remember the specific word for it, but it would spend a super super small amount of time working on that. Right, and it would work on the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. And then it would spend another bit of time working on that. And then the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. So it could continue running that really expensive task kind of infinitely. Sure. And the rest of your system wouldn't crash. Okay. All right. 
Um, all right. So as far as like, uh, all right. So I know you're building a boot camp. Is that right? You're building an Elixir boot camp. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, we call it an academy. Academy. I don't know okay. what the difference between an academy and a boot camp is, but we call it an academy. I mean, um, I, I assume an academy w- could maybe stretch longer than a boot camp. I don't know. Usually the boot camps yes. are like, you know, short term and, but I mean, I don't know. I don't know what your, what your plans are with it. Yeah, so I can give you the kind of uh, overview. So um, it's uh, it's called Dockyard Academy. This is a three-month uh, full-time uh, course that people can apply to. We haven't launched yet, um, but we are accepting uh, kind of people to say that they're interested. So okay. we have um, – I can uh, maybe put a link to that in the show notes. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, and uh, yeah, so three-month full-time, learn about Elixir. Uh, you walk through kind of the understanding of uh, Elixir syntax and kind of the basics, solving problems. We go to project development with a tool called Mix. Um, and then we also talk about web development with a framework called Phoenix. Uh, we okay. talk about some styling and CSS with a uh, another kind of CSS utility framework called Tailwind, which is really popular in the Elixir community. Okay. Um, and then we also cover this concept called OTP, um, mm. which is... Uh, the, the acronym is uh, rooted deeply in the history of how these things came to be. So it doesn't mean a lot. It's open telecom platform. What it really means is there's a bunch of tools uh, related to distributed systems, concurrency, all the stuff that I've already talked about that are collectively grouped under what we call OTP in Elixir. Uh, and so this is a... Um, uh, all of our curriculum for the course is uh, completely free and open source. Um, the instructor-led training that people sign up for that will be you know, full-time with me, um, that's obviously a paid program. Um, I don't have information yet about cost, but I anticipate that our first cohort is going to be um, uh, heavily discounted. So um, people can kind of stay in the loop with that if they sign up. Sure. Um, and uh, what, what else did I want to say? I was I was thinking about something, and then my brain kind of <laughs> went a million different directions as it uh, so this is... as it can do right. So oh, go ahead. Oh, I just want to mention. So yeah, the curriculum is completely open source. It's in beta. Uh, it's still a work in progress. So some of the content is not yet completed, but I'm constantly working through it. Um, so people can kind of learn through Elixir by walking through that at their own self-led pace. That's a resource that is free, will always be free, uh, and is like the backbone of how we're going to teach the course. Um, and yeah, so that's that's Dockyard Academy. I think that's all of my importance. What is um, what is Dockyard? Dockyard. Yeah, so Dockyard is a consulting agency. Um, okay. They are uh, big in the Elixir space. Um, okay. So we were one of the platinum sponsors for Elixir Conf 2022 this year, uh, which just passed. That was a few weeks ago. Oh, nice. Um, it's kind of funny. Dockyard was actually my dream company. Um, I had a I had a friend ask me while I was kind of going through this tumultuous time, like, hey, what do I want to do next? Mm-hmm. I asked like, hey, like, what's your what's your five year plan? Like, where do you see yourself in five years? Like, ah, you know what? I would love to be working for either Dockyard uh, or SmartLogic is another really awesome company in the space that I mentioned. Um, I'd love to be working for one of those two companies, you know, kind of like five years down the line. And then three months later, I was working for Dockyard. Oh, wow. That's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) So the timeline was definitely accelerated. Uh. Um, But yeah, they have, like, if you want a prime... it, it's weird because these are things I would say even when I wasn't working at Dockyard, so it feels weird to like say it on behalf of Dockyard because right. now I, you know, it it comes it it lands differently 
when you represent the company. Sure. Um, so that's too bad. But I still believe these things, so I'm going to say them. Um, one of the best examples of company culture, especially remote company culture, that I've ever seen. Like you could do case studies on how uh, Dockyard manages their teams, manages remote work. They were working remotely before everyone was, and everyone had to. Um, so they already kind of had it figured out. Um, and yeah, mm -hmm. I love Dockyard, but they do consulting. So when people want uh, expertise in Elixir, uh, we also do some Ruby and Ruby on Rails stuff. Um, they go to Dockyard. Okay. All right, cool. And uh, in case we didn't mention it, um, one of the cool things about Elixir is it actually has Ruby. It uses Ruby syntax. Is that right? Well, so um, it Ruby looks -like. a lot like Ruby syntax. Yeah. It's definitely Ruby-like. Um, so the creator, Jose Valim, came from the Ruby community. So he was inspired by the same principles of having you know English-like code, code that reads like it's spoken English. Um, and has you know done his best, and the community has done their best to mm -hmm. uh, maintain readability. Um, we're all about explicitness. That's one thing I think that Ruby and Elixir really differ in. Is okay. Ruby has a lot of kind of magic, sure, um, in it where it's like I don't really know how this is working, but it's abstracted a lot for me, so it's convenient. That's true. It's but it's conventional, and I don't actually know how it works. So if I need to like debug it that becomes kind of hard to understand how the whole system is working right um whereas elixir took a lot of yeah ruby like syntax where if you're coming from ruby it's going to feel familiar there will definitely be some things that do trip you up like mutation is one of those common ones where hey like mm. i just redefined uh, rebound this variable why is it not changed it's like well because you can't mutate it um you know you can't call a function rebind the variable mm. and have it changed outside of the scope of that function. You're not allowed to do that. Oh. Um, so there will be some things that will trip people up, of course, if you're coming from object oriented, um, but it is designed with um, readability and developer experience in mind. It has tons of really awesome tools. Like one of the, one of the coolest things that I fell in love with, cause I'm someone who really loves testing is it has a built-in testing framework called X unit. Um, the tests are really, really clean. I think it's one of the cleanest frameworks I've ever seen. Um, the test output, because of the nature of Elixir, um, it's able to give you quite a lot of information about your test failures. Um, so Elixir, um, there's something called the AST, which is an abstract, abstract syntax tree. It's essentially the way that Elixir is represented under the hood. And so when you are calling a function, um, let's say you're giving it a... Uh, a variable. So you bind a variable to the number two. Um, uh, well, let's say maybe a more complex. You, you bind a variable to a map, which is kind of like an object in JavaScript, a key value data structure, um, and then you pass that to a function. So Elixir doesn't just have the value you passed in, it's also able to understand information about what you passed in. Like it can know if you passed in a function, it'll know the name of the function and some information about it. Um, it can know um, quite a lot because of the abstract syntax tree that it uses to represent under the hood. Um, and so instead of just saying, hey, like we thought, you know, assert true kind of a thing, like um, this test was supposed to return truthy, it returned falsy. It can give you really specific information about like, hey, you said that two was supposed to be equal to four. It's not. <laughs> Here's the difference between them. This map was supposed to be equal to this map. It's not. Here's the exact key value differences between them. Um, so as far as testing goes, it, it's beautiful. I, I love XUnit. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, let's see here. 
I kind of scribbled some questions down, but um, I think we've been covering most of it. Um, so, yeah. go ahead. Oh, I'm, I, I just want to say I'm kind of the type of person yeah. uh, who... I'm like a wind-up toy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you wind me up and get me going on a subject, I will kind of talk forever. No, that's fine. Um, um, that's actually fun. It makes it makes it a lot fun, more fun because um, then I don't have to worry about you know, uh, kind of scripting everything out. Usually, I just try to ask you know, ask questions based on what we're talking about or you know that that kind of mm-hmm. thing. But um, if I have anything specific, I kind of scribbled it down. Like um, you had a guy on your podcast. Yeah, I think his was his name Daniel. I, I could be completely wrong. He was. Can you tell me what the subject? Was? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he was looking for his first job, and he had decided to jump into Elixir. Oh, um, Matthew Baker. Matthew, Matthew. I don't know. He's why a I good thought... friend of mine. Yeah. yeah. Well, he, funny enough, I had him on the podcast, right? Because he reached out and said, "Hey, like I enjoy Elixir Newbie. Mm-hmm. I'm looking for my first dev job," and that led to me asking, "Hey, like, do you want to come on? That'd be perfect." Um, and him and I are now like very good friends. We play Dungeons and Dragons every week. Oh, nice. Um, <laughs> Sounds like fun. Yeah. So if you want to be on my podcast, just send me a message. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> and then we'll play Dungeons and Dragons together. Sweet. I think that's kind of how on the how podcast the goes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah. Sorry. Did you have a, did have a, yeah, a, I was, a question uh, about Matthew? Yeah. No, not an issue. I just um, was curious how his job hunt went and where he landed and. That sort of thing. Yeah. So I'm so sad. Him and I recorded a follow-up episode. Oh, he did. Um, celebrating that he found his uh, job and he's been working there for a while. Yeah. And unfortunately, I'm going to probably have to re-record when I have some time. Okay. Because we had an audio issue and I had to throw away the audio. Oh, geez. Yeah. yeah there was, it had like a double echo thing and his uh-huh. mic was also picking up my sound. And Oh, that's terrible. Um, yeah. Oh, it's heartbreaking. I've got a friend that um, uh, I've tried to bring on a couple th- he he always winds up with some kind of weird audio issue, and uh, that's a bummer. This and even in like all the stuff that I've tried, um, including um, some software that's AI driven, couldn't pull the high pitched whine out of out of uh, his audio, and it was just it was too much. And you know the high pitched whine was annoying to listen to, so I just scrapped yeah. it. And I've tried to record yeah. a couple more times, and just you know hasn't worked out the secret of uh content creation you lose you lose a lot of it what people see is only only a small part of what is actually made yeah that's so true i do like the fact that um you know using something like zencaster holds your audio for you so if you need to download it again at any point you can um Mm -hmm. and uh i did need to at some point because um, somebody on Twitter graciously gave me this Mac mini that I'm using. Um, nice. and it's, uh, um, I, I had issues because Apple does a lot of weird stuff and, you know, you, you resetting your Apple ID is really hard. And, you know, it's funny because I used to, I used to work as a cell phone salesman. And so, you know, I used to, f- to troubleshoot people's iPhones and, you know, Apple IDs and all this stuff all the time. I mean, and so I knew better. I knew that if I set up an Apple ID, I had to write everything down mm-hmm. and on paper and put it somewhere physical where I could get at it and, you know, remember where it was. And when I made my Apple ID for this, I'm just like, oh, I'll remember it, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, <laughs> uh, Lost, yep. lost the password. 
couldn't get couldn't get back into it. Yeah. And then I wound yep. up. Yeah, I had to jump through a bunch of hoops to um, to get back into the computer. So I had wiped it, um, which included whatever audio I had recorded at the time. But fortunately, I, it was still on ZenCaster, so I was able to re-download it. Um, yeah, the the secret to making sure that you never lose anything is have everything backed up somewhere on a cloud. Yeah. Um, and also, I keep everything in GitHub. <laughs> Literally oh, nice. everything, even like personal notes, oh. I keep it in GitHub, whether it's public or private. Interesting. So I could destroy my computer right now. Yeah. Um, and I would just be out money. Like that's the only disappointment there'd be. I would be fine with my data. I'd have it all somewhere. You know, maybe I would lose some like local Git changes if I hadn't committed and pushed something up. That is like the worst thing that will happen. So oh wow. Um very important. If you're a programmer, make sure that if your computer catches fire yeah. or dies, that you're okay. That is a security thing that you should be considering is computers just suddenly die. Um, yes, they do. That happens. They break. And so if you have anything that you'd be scared to lose, have a system for that, whatever it is. If it's a backup, I hate doing like manual backups, plus they're kind of unreliable, mm-hmm. plus they can break. Right. Um, so I, I much preferred any kind of cloud system that just automates these things, having everything in OneDrive or whatever, whatever it is, using things like the Google suite like google docs google mm-hmm. slides yeah use docs a lot programs yeah whatever it is all right um cool man we have gone all over the board yeah that's with our it makes for a great today. title <laughs> yeah, it's have gonna you, be like you seen my titles keywords long <laughs> <laughs> they're all just like random stuff pulled from pulled from each episode it's kind of kind of funny um be funny i wanted uh oh yeah so for someone trying to, you know, get started. Oh, oh, I know what it was. You were talking about wanting to make Elixir like a a first language kind of um kind of thing on your podcast. Mm. Um, yeah. What are you, what are your kind of thoughts on Elixir as a first language for somebody? Yeah. So I think there's some things fighting against that right now. Mm-hmm. Some unfortunate realities, which are functional programming has terrible branding. Yes. So um, I bet that if anyone listening to this has heard of functional programming and hasn't actually tried it yet, mm-hmm. their opinion or what they've heard is that it's kind of hard. Yeah. Right? Like yeah. it has bad branding. People think, oh, it's really math heavy. It's only for, you know, really mathematical stuff, which like just isn't true at all. Um, so it has horrible branding and people have been kind of misrepresenting it, um, in my opinion, at least. And so I think... There's that. There's the perception of functional is hard, and so it doesn't attract beginners. Right. Um, and then there's just inertia and momentum, right? Like, if you want to get a job, you intuitively think, okay, I should use the most popular language, um, right? That often means JavaScript. Sure. And so my kind of counter to that is if you're looking for a job, what really matters is not the number of jobs out there. What matters is the ratio of developers to jobs, mm. right? So take mm-hmm. take some simple math, right? Um, if I am one of a hundred developers applying to 10 jobs, you know, that's, that's hard, right? Um, you scale that up and say, oh, well, it's actually 10,000 jobs and a hundred thousand developers, whatever, um, for the sake of simple math, you know, let's say 110, right? Um, that means that, you know, 90 people are not going to have jobs. And so even though I picked the one that had maybe more, so let's say that's JavaScript. When I say Elixir, um, there are... Uh, five jobs instead of 10. Um, but now there's only 20 developers, right? Mm-hmm. As, as far okay. as your ratio goes. 
So Elixir right now in particular, there is a huge hiring demand. Like we need developers. Um, it's one of the biggest complaints in the space by companies right now is I need more people to hire. And so huge, huge demand. And it's much easier, in my opinion, to stand out as an Elixir developer because uh, we just celebrated our 10th year anniversary. So that means that most people are not going to have, you know, it's impossible to have more than 10 years of experience. And most people are not going to have more than five. Um, and so if you have any real Elixir experience, you're suddenly much more of a standout. Like finding out, oh, you have a year or two of Elixir experience is much more impressive than, oh, you have a year or two of JavaScript experience. It's like that's mm. almost a minimum on most, you know, yeah. entry-level jobs somehow these days. Right, right? yeah. Seen the you need like 20 things. years of JavaScript experience and yeah, 15 frameworks. Yeah, it's horrible. It's completely horrible. Um, <laughs> Uh, but, um, but yeah, so I think that, um, one, uh, that, so that's the hiring piece of it, right. Is I think mm -hmm. that people are scared to get into Elixir because they're concerned about work. And what I've seen is that there's actually quite a lot of work. The people that I've tried to help get into Elixir have been able to find work. Mm -hmm. Um, Docker Academy is going to be really connected to the industry. So that's going to be a great way to kind of grow people into the language and help them find work afterwards. So, so I think that finding a job is... So your uh, boot camp will um, be uh, giving some sort of support for getting work, getting yeah. jobs? Yeah, absolutely. So um, there's going to be a possibility. So we can't make guarantees. Sure. Um, yeah, but there is going to be a possibility of being placed with Dockyard. So that's one of the nice things about having this started by a company who does Elixir Consulting. Oh, that's fair. Is like we are also hiring. And so there's a great, you know, that's a great opportunity for some people to potentially be placed within um, hiring programs at Dockyard. We're going to be ready to kind of receive new developers and and help them ease into the industry. Okay. Um, we also have hiring partners, so people we know in the community that we can help people reach out to. Um, you know, because Dockyard is a big player in the Elixir space, um, there's going to be lots of people. Like I, I talked to our people responsible for hiring, and they've already had companies reach out and saying, like, "Hey, like, can we hire people from you? Like, how is that going to work?" Um, mm. and so I think there's a huge opportunity there on the hiring front. Oh, wow. Um, and then the other is learning, right? So getting a sure. job is one of the factors involved with picking your first language. If that's your priority, which for most people it's going to be, then you want to know that you can get a job. And so right now, a lot of people concerned, oh, Elixir smaller. I don't think it'll be as easy to get a job. I think that is just bad branding again. And I think right. that the reality of the story is that actually, I think it is, um, I, I don't know easier or harder, mm -hmm. but I will say it is very, very possible to get a job within Elixir. Like you can find Elixir work. There's lots of work out there um, and there's fewer developers looking for it. So you have a higher, uh, you have a better ratio of people applying for these jobs. Yeah. You'd probably have so better visibility if you were applying exactly, for this. Right? Okay. Yeah. That yeah, makes a lot like, of sense. I mean, if I had started a JavaScript podcast, I don't think that anyone would really have noticed, right? It would have mm -hmm. been like the 200th JavaScript podcast. Yeah. Right? There's, yeah. Um, but in Elixir, I think I'm probably like the somewhere between the fourth and the eighth Elixir podcast. Okay, um, yeah, yeah. So I saw a couple other ones, but they I, were. I think yours was the only one I saw that was sort of on the newbie spectrum. Um, yeah, I, I picked newbie. Um, I think that was smart because I I was a newbie when I was. I still I I like to walk in with beginner mindset still, but mm -hmm, I literally mm -hmm. started a podcast being an absolute brand new developer in Elixir. Like I had been a developer, but Elixir was new to me. Right. Um, 
And so that was my way of saying, hey, I don't know what I'm talking about. So uh, if I say anything <laughs> wrong, <laughs> don't shoot don't me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so there's, there's opportunities there. Now, I also want to say from a learning perspective, what I've seen is that functional programming seems to fit better with how most people think about learning. Uh, most think about most people think about programming kind of out of the box. Like we force object-oriented programming into people's heads mm, and mm -hmm. make them think about the world in this like way that in my opinion just doesn't match how reality works. Right. Whereas functional seems to, yeah, like the people who struggle with functional, like new developers learning functional seem to really pick it up. And it's just kind of like they, they learn because it's what they're seeing. It makes sense. Um, yeah. Where I see struggle is often unlearning object-oriented. Mm -hmm is that's where the struggle is, is like, hey, like, why can't I just have a for loop, put a variable outside of the for loop, and then mutate it in order to return my output? It's like, well, because we don't do that. We don't do mutation. Uh, and so suddenly there's a lot of problems that you could solve one way that you want to force your previously working solution. And you kind of need to learn the idiomatic elixir way, functional way of doing it. But for people who are coming into it for the first time, uh, there's this awesome talk, which I hope will be put up on YouTube. ElixirConf just happened, and then the recordings for ElixirConf yeah. uh, get uploaded, you know, kind of weeks later. I don't know when they'll, they'll be out. Okay. Um, but there was an awesome talk by someone named Kimberly Bricks, uh, and she told her story of how she went from a self-taught developer to her first Elixir job. And so Elixir is her first, like, professional language. Um, and that's super cool to see. Oh, yeah, that'll you know, be great. Yeah, so I, I highly recommend that talk if you want. It's it's definitely more of like a personal story mm -hmm. um, kind of a talk rather than something like technical about how to learn Elixir. But sure. if you're just looking for something kind of inspiring, I I really loved. Uh, I thought her her story and and um, seeing that more people are getting into it from scratch was super inspiring. Yeah, I think for a lot of people that you know might be listening, um, including myself, um, looking for those those kind of maybe incidental or. If I said the wrong word, I'm not sure, but, um, you know, anecdotal. just, yeah, anecdotal, <laughs> uh, just those kind of, um, you know, uh, stories about people getting, getting into the industry for the first time are, are definitely inspiring and, um, something to, to watch or listen to. Um, I enjoyed it. Yeah, That's why I liked uh, your conversation with Matthew. Um, that was actually one of my favorite episodes. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. I, I really, I'm glad because there's some podcasts in the Elixir space that are much more like Elixir expertise, mm -hmm. right? And so when they have people on, they need to talk about really highly technical subjects. Yeah. Um, when I first, I have the freedom. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I was gonna say when sorry, I first I didn't mean to interrupt you. When I first started listening to Elixir podcasts, you know, I was kind of like just kind of checking them out. So I listened to an episode here and there of whatever there was. Um, yeah, they were all like really way over my head, and I was like, yeah, okay, I'm gonna <laughs> find something less uh, technical. <laughs> yeah, it can be overwhelming, right? And those yeah. are, by the way, outstanding podcasts. Oh, if yeah, you are yeah. capable of following along, that's what you want, right? I don't want to have to wait while someone explains what a gen server is to me. And I'm purposely not going to explain that to kind of demonstrate my point because um, <laughs> that would be a whole explanation in and of itself. Yeah. But um, I don't want to have to rehash that explanation if I'm listening to an expertise podcast, which is where I saw there was an opportunity in the in the beginner space. Um, which I love because yeah, I can have anyone on. Like I can have people from non-elixir spaces. Right. Um, it 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 really opens up the uh, the doors there. Yeah. Most definitely. Yeah, I know we're we're kind of getting to what I think is probably the tail end of yeah. uh, the time that we have. Um, so I did just mm -hmm. want to mention 
for anyone who is wanting to learn more about Elixir. Um, I'm happy to uh, give like, I, I'm, I give kind of coaching advice, hiring advice. Uh, I'm always happy to talk to people and respond to them on Twitter. Uh, that's probably the easiest way to kind of get a hold of me. There's also other things like LinkedIn if you want to do that, but um, I'm at Brooklyn J Myers on Twitter. So if anyone is wanting to learn more about Elixir or wants to talk about, hey, like how can I get into this? Um, you know, my, my messages are always open. I'm always happy to talk to people who are just interested in exploring the space. Um, and yeah, of course, I already mentioned it, but if people are interested in beta testing the academy, um, I do free coaching and training as part of that, or I should just say teaching. Um, so three to four times a week, I do one to two hour sessions where it's either an open support time where people can just um, ask questions about kind of the curriculum or just any Elixir stuff that they've been working on. Um, or I also do typically Monday night teaching time where I will teach about some kind of Elixir concept. Again, all of that is free. Um, none of that is paid. That's all. If you, if you send me a message on Twitter and say, hey, I'm really interested in beta testing the curriculum, um, that I will get you on there and you can join our Discord where we have a whole community of mentors and awesome folks who can help you learn Elixir. Sounds perfect, man. Um, thanks a lot for coming on and, and uh, talking to me today. I really appreciate it. It's been, been a blast. Yeah, this is super fun. We wound up going way over, I think, our uh, initial recording time. I, I hope you're going to have fun editing this. Oh, yeah, it's gonna. Um, that, that's always a fun. Uh, chopping it up is always a good time. Yeah, no doubt. This is why I don't edit. I just cut out the dead silences, and that is all the editing that I do. Yeah, the, you know, and, um, the, the PHP Ugly Guys, that's pretty much all they do, too. I think they stream their episodes now on YouTube, oh, cool. and then, you know, they, they run it through a couple of... Uh, programs to fix audio and that kind of stuff and then just shoot it out um yeah. i still take a kind of a heavier hand to the editing um just still learning my workflow but um but yeah <laughs> yeah it's a it's a process yeah. eventually like i got to the point where the podcast was a thing i had a whole day to spend on and now it's a thing that i have like minutes right exactly <laughs> to spend which on. i'm, I'm kind of getting there yeah. I, I i tend to i try to listen through each episode just to kind of, you know, cover my butt. Um, yep. like this, uh, this episode, I'm, I'm actually in the middle of editing now. I'm not really cutting much. I'm just kind of, you know, uh, one of the speakers had a lot of background noise because of where he's located. Um, mm. and he's in Kenya. And so his, yep. he had to basically book a week in advance to be able to get on the podcast with a ca internet cafe. Um, yep. so yeah, it was a little bit challenging there, but so you had some background noise. It's tough. So I just try to cut, you know, cut where I can and leave some of it in, but you know, it is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, the remote world has made a lot of people need to, yeah, it's, it's tough. I actually feel, I feel for people who have a hard time getting a nice background, mm -hmm. um, whether that's visual, whether that's just background noise, like it has created kind of a new class system. Um, and like, I think the truest sense of the word where if you have that opportunity, that is like a very strong advantage that you used to not need because we just had offices. So yeah, it's, yeah. I love remote work, but it's good to be aware of the negatives that we need to like overcome and figure out how can we, how can we make it easier for people to, you know, have a background or have something that won't have tons of noise. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. All right, man. Well, thanks a lot. Um, Thanks for coming on, and I will uh, maybe I'll hit you up on Twitter. I've got a couple other things I want to ask you. 
<laughs> Absolutely. Feel free to reach out anytime. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Me. Thanks. Take it easy. You've been listening to episode five of the Citizen Coder podcast. If you'd like to follow Brooklyn, you can find him on Twitter. Link is in the show notes. If you're interested in Elixir programming or would like to know more, or if you're interested in trying out the Dockyard Academy curriculum, check the show notes for more information. You can follow me on Twitter, LinkedIn, or YouTube. And as always, I'll see you next time.